Although the utopian does see the effects of present-day society, in fact Marx praises respectfully some of the masters of utopian thought, his error lies in deducing the shape of future society, not from a concentration of real processes that link the course of the past to that of the future, not from natural and social reality, but from its own head, from human reason. The utopian believes that the goal of society's course must be contained in the victory of certain principles that are innate in the human spirit. Amadeo Bordiga Hello friends and enemies. It's episode 317 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy as always. And I, I'm I'm truly over the moon here, excited to be joined by not one, but two returning champions to TMK, two of our favorite guests um, to talk about what is, you know, honestly one of the most like thoughtful and thought-provoking essays I've read in a, in a very long time. I'm not just gassing it up uh, because the authors are, are here looking at me in my eyes right now. But um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy to be joined by uh, Nick Chavez, who has, you know, been on the show so many times now. Um, every time Nick writes an essay, it's an excuse to get Nick back on to talk about the 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 techno science of communism, the engineering of communism, uh, and this is no uh, no exception to that. But we are also happy to be joined as well by Phil Neal, who was on last to have to talk about um, theories of crisis in capitalism. And we really, I, I, I still think about that essay or that episode all the time um, and your work on this, but also um, Phil is the author of the book Hinterlands and has done so much uh, just really excellent economic geography work, um, thinking really hard about these kind of, these really technical questions of political economy. And that's what I'm most excited to have both Nick and Phil on for because um, they, they, they are two Two of the most like technically minded uh, communists that I know, thinking really hard about not just the materialist analysis, but the real actual like mechanics of what does crisis look like? What does communism look like? What does the production of, of techno science and engineering and knowledge um, in capitalism, but also in a non-capitalist society look like? And the, the essay that is the excuse to have Nick and Phil on is uh, called Forest and Factory, The Science and the Fiction of Communism, um, which they published uh, on the EndNotes website. And I, I, I mean, one, guys, you, you, you guys really went off here with like a 20,000 word essay about uh, outlining um, uh, <laughs> the, the hard science and the hard science fiction of what, uh, of what a communist society would look like. Um, it was, it's so much fun to read and there's so much to get into, but maybe just as a way to orient us, I want to, I want to toss it to Phil and, and just ask like what motivated you guys composing what ended up being a, a kind of a novella size uh, essay, um, but one that I, I, I really enjoyed reading from start to finish. At no point did it feel like a slog, um, or at no point did I feel lost in some morass. Like you really kept a, a, a clear analysis and a clear purpose in mind. But 
what what even motivated you guys getting together to to write this essay in the first place? Yeah, uh, thanks for having us on. By the way, uh, happy to be here again. Um, <clears throat> I think there's a couple different things that motivated it. There's kind of an immediate sense uh, where we uh, had you know read this particular piece that we respond to uh, a little bit or engage with in in our own piece uh, by Soren Mao. Um, and we wanted to sort of respond kind of point by point to a couple of things in that. Uh, and we both had talked uh, about being dissatisfied with certain aspects of that piece, uh, despite really liking uh, much of Mao's other kind of analytic work about, you know, how capitalism works. Um, but then it, it turned into kind of this broader discussion also about the things that we were dissatisfied with in uh, both kind of colloquial utopias that we had heard kind of expressed about, like colloquial expressions of how people envision an anti-capitalist uh, future, or like a non-capitalist future in terms of uh, what we had seen kind of just in our everyday lives of talking to people, et cetera, et cetera. And then also this sort of subgenre of uh, utopian uh, fiction, you know, uh, which focuses on a, on a particular um, type of sub subset of kind of uh, topics which we can maybe broadly categorize as kind of everyday life or uh, topics of, of uh, social reproduction, right? Things that are kind of immediate for people in a deindustrialized kind of scenario, but we're all kind of shared the fact that they didn't really address concrete questions of uh, production. And then beyond that, I think it was just an outlet, like you said, uh, I, I'm glad to hear that it was kind of fun to read because it was also something that was uh, just sort of fun to write. You know, it was something that we, uh, maybe sort of topics that you kind of discuss, um, uh, casually with friends who have similar kind of interests, but actually kind of writing it out and formulating it, I think, I think was a little bit uh, more fun. But I would say that if there's a big driving kind of force to it, like analytically, we intended it as kind of a corrective to a lot of, uh, uh, of these sort of utopian schemes that we had seen, um, not necessarily that they were always kind of outright wrong or whatever, uh, but maybe in their points of focus, it, they always had this glaring absence, right, of of production, concrete questions of production, but also the kind of political question of how to organize the uh, the process of production, the technical process of production, which is also, of course, a, a social question. Yeah, I'll, I'll say the um, before we were recording, Nick kind of described it as you guys were you you guys had this kind of initial argument response you wanted to make to a piece by Sora Mal, which we can get into a little bit there as well, and also get into the fact that like you know we are on you know TMK like in the middle of a book club series on mute compulsion where we're going chapter by chapter doing full episodes devoted to discussing each chapter because we're i mean and i know you guys like us love are loving this book like it is such a clear and comprehensive kind of analysis of how capitalism works um and its fundamental relations uh but at the same time like really moving beyond just that ruthless criticism of, of everything existing, um, which is necessary, but moving onward to a kind of a, a radical imagination of what doesn't yet exist. Um, but what, what needs to there, that, that, 
making that leap is always difficult for people because it requires thinking in like a really different register um, of not just having like a really clear uh, and, and ruthless critique of what you can see in front of you or maybe not see in front of you as the case may be where some of these dynamics are not obvious, but you can see them operating if you look askew and look in the right ways um, versus having a kind of clear-eyed vision of something that does not yet exist and almost by definition needs to look very different than what exists now because like there's some real synchronicity here where the 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 um the premium episode that immediately precedes this episode was our book club episode about soren's chapter on subsumption um and what you guys are really talking about here is like what does communism look like in a world of of both formal and real subsumption by capitalism where where the the processes of social reproduction the processes of economic production all of these things have been in to large extent, um, greatly, if not totally, subsumed um, into capital, whether that's formally subsumed in the sense that, you know, um, they are still done in, in non-capitalist ways or ways that could exist outside of capitalist logics, but they are directed towards capitalist ends of the, you know, maximizing the production and capture of surplus value, or they've been really subsumed, which means they have been completely remolded, re-engineered, reshaped to be capitalist in nature. Um, and so, like, I, like I think in a lot of ways, our that our, our our episode on subsumption was a nice kind of prologue for our our discussion um, today, uh, because like that's really the question you guys are confronting: is how do we overcome? Uh, formal and real subsumption um, under capitalism, and and I think like making that leap is really, really difficult because like the, 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 um, essay that you guys are responding to from Soren Mao is one that he published like in the middle of last year for the Verso blog, which was republished, um, from a, like a Scandinavian social democratic newspaper where he has a column. Um, and it was just about like, you know, uh, communism is freedom. It was the, the kind of the, the pithy title of it on the Verso. And it was really about like, we're going to have these like social democratic like communes and it's going to be all real like, um, you know, grassroots, just completely decentralized. And everyone's going to live in these kind of free, like free communes um, of like voluntary association. And maybe some of the, maybe like neighboring communes are not totally like committed to communist uh, or socialism. Um, but it's more of this kind of like non-aggression principle almost like you let people live and pick and choose to live in the small communes that most match their values or their, their, their goals. And, and all of that sounds really nice in some ways, but I think the motivating um, argument here in your piece is that, and I really love the way you, you, kind of describe this where you say that uh, uh i'll just actually quote from the piece a little bit where where you talk about um that you know they that they these kind of thought experiments 
um, are not committed to anything like a scientific methodology, dissolving common sense appearances with the corrosive force of critical inquiry. They are instead largely uncritical, taking the immediate and inherently alienated appearance of the world at face value. Rather than science fiction, they are something more like magical realism, mirroring reality in the exaggerated form of a fable. Uh, and I really loved that distinction between like a kind of a, a science fiction or hard science fiction and a magical realism. And it really spoke. And I also felt seen in a lot of ways where it's like, oh, fuck, they're right. Like a lot of this utopian thinking is just doing magical realism um, rather than thinking real like materialist and scientific about it. And so I want to throw it over to you, Nick. Um, and like, could you tease out that distinction um, there a little bit more and the kind of underlying criticism that then forms the basis for what you guys are doing in the in this essay certainly um yeah first off thanks thanks for having me back again um the uh i hope i'm not too much of a beating a dead horse with some of the things i'll say today since i've probably said a lot of it already in previous appearances um regard, regarding quick note regarding your guys is um uh Mood Compulsion book club. I, I listen to every episode. I think I'm, I'm quite enjoying it. It's a, I've, I've read the book already, of course, but it's a, it's kind of nice to, you know, get to hear some people discussing it and really working out a lot of the kind of nuances of it. And I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it a lot, but as far as the, uh, so the kind of distinction we make in terms of, uh, science fiction and the different, I guess you could call them sub genres that we're using as metaphors. Uh, our whole deal is that we want to, as as communists, as as materialists, I guess you could call us. Uh, we think it's really critical to engage with the world as it actually exists. Um, you have to have an idea of where you're going. You have to have a vision of the future that is uh, fundamentally different uh, to to what we experience today. But in order, you, there's some in order to be you know to do it right. There's a couple things you have to keep in mind, and it's you need to. In order to write about the future, you really need to understand the present, and that's for that's for two things. You need to make sure that the future you're imagining actually is fundamentally different than today, than the the world is today. Um, because you know, if you don't really truly understand the world you live in, you could write something that is maybe has like the window dressings of being a, a radically different world. But if all the underlying logic is the same, then then what was the point? It's not actually. You know, if you're trying to be political about it, there's there's no kind of emancipatory potential to it. But um, even if you do manage to conceive of a world that is so fundamentally different to that of today, uh, and that is would be an emancipatory uh, place to live of, of freedom and abundance or whatever, um, how do you get there? And it's uh, you know it's impossible to kind of spell those things out uh, play by play. You just you don't know how the the trajectory of history is going to unfold, but you do have to, uh, you know, un be able to conceptually link the fact that the world is a certain way today and it has to undergo changes to those very constitutive elements of what it is today in order to become something else, hopefully your better vision for tomorrow. And so uh, for us, the key thing that we try doing, we, we, we use uh, hard science fiction as our metaphor because uh, there's there's competing definitions for what exactly defines hard science fiction. You know, different hard science aficionados will uh, will disagree, maybe. Uh, but there's a, a couple critical. There's two main important elements, and uh, you know, you people can disagree about which one's more important than the other, or if 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 one's even necessary. But the first is that uh, it tries to adhere to 
physics and science and engineering as we currently understand it is, you know, being quote unquote realistic. Um, of course, you know, given that it's fiction, maybe there will be one established thing that's different from our universe as, as we understand it scientifically. And then, you know, the fictional universe, but the idea is that, uh, it's, it's trying to adhere to something that we would perceive of as realistic in, in the quote unquote technical sense. Um, but, uh, and that's, so that's one element. The second is that it's has internally consistent logic. A lot of fiction, uh, not hard science fiction, but other, other fiction, whether it's, whether it's different kinds of science fiction or, uh, what you could call fantasy, stuff like that. It'll often have plot lines and settings and world building that is fun, but it, you know, and things kind of don't hold up with each other. Like, you know, why do people have this technology, but then they don't use it for like the very obvious, um, I, you know, purpose of doing X, Y, or Z that would totally upend, uh, everything else about the setting. It's, you know, there's, uh, I'm one of the people that gets kind of bothered when I'm watching a movie or reading a book where they, you know, they, they have some kind of like magical technology that is let, lets them do like anything and they use it for like one thing and then everything else has like nothing to do with it. I'm like, come on, like, yeah, that's not realistic. Uh, I mean, realistic in the sense that it's not internally consistent. Uh, obviously like magical Omni 3d printers are not, not realistic in the sense that they don't exist. So uh, to, to get back to the point here, uh, we use hard science fiction as the metaphor because what we're trying to do here is uh, by elucidating the kind of abstract dynamics of how this world works, much like how you know Marx was trying to do in, in his later writings, um, we can tease out the elements of what constitutes our world and therefore what needs to transform, what needs to be either like just completely destroyed or uh, totally modified in order to build a, another world that we call communism and many other people throughout history have called communism. And we need to understand what is communism? And it has to be fundamentally different from capitalism because, or rather through those very same dynamics that we understood capitalism to be. And by making, by getting rid of those and building something different, that's how we know our vision is, um, you know, has the potential to be, uh, both implementable and emancipatory rather than, uh, something that isn't in fiction, but also in political work and, and ideological tracks. I mean, why do you think it is that maybe someone may go about the work of crafting a place far away in the future or situated, you know, in the future to build backwards from or to build towards, uh, or, or a world that they might think of as instructive or uh, insightful or worth building towards, but not work through, you know, those two sort of principles that you're talking about or teasing out as like, uh, it's like, you know, rules or ideas about what helps make an internally consistent and, and, uh, realistic depiction of, you know, a political future or, or social future or reality in, 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 in that place. Like, why do you, do you think it comes down to a shortcoming? You know, do you, uh, do you feel that it comes down to, um, you know, the, as, as it is in the, in the fiction, I think as you, as you lay out also, you know, maybe, um, inconsistent ideas or decision to make, take shortcuts to make certain points or, you know, are there, I, should, I mean, you get into that, the piece, what I want to back up and I want to ask like, you know, what, what's the root of the observation that led you to be like, okay, well, you know, I think that science fiction can offer as a commentary piece insight into the political visions, because I thought that that was like a really interesting place to start with, um, by looking at, 
science fiction because I think usually it's typically thought of, even though it has, you know, some sort of polit- you know radical and and leftist cadres and spaces for imagination, um, not Im- not immediately thought of in that way, except in the hands of maybe a few specific um, writers. Good question. I think that the the easy, uh, quick and dirty answer is. Phil and I like science fiction. We like talking about <laughs> science fiction. We like thinking about it. Nice. It's nice. fun. We like nice. reading it. I guess the, uh, I mean, to, to answer the, the earlier question, but like with the, you know, why not everyone uh, will do it the way that we do it is, uh, in, I mean, for fiction that, that isn't trying to be political, it's just because like, you know, not everyone's a big old nerd. Um, you know, some people, <laughs> some people just don't prioritize it as high and that's perfectly valid. Like, you know, not everything needs to be hard science fiction. But uh, the reason that in when people try and do kind of political imaginings of the future, whether it's like in the context of a, uh, you know, like they're trying to write a book like, like, like Ursula Le Guin or whatever, or someone who's trying to write a more kind of pointed uh, speculative kind of more uh, not focused on the fiction, but more focused on the political end. There's a, there's a number of reasons. I think a big, and, and I know Phil will have a lot of interesting things to say about this too, but I think a big chief reason is that like, at least in the Anglophone world, in the, in the kind of, I guess what we call the global North, uh, North America and, you know, parts of Western Europe that, that are English conversant. Um, these, you know, these are countries, these are, these are places where, uh, industrial labor has often been like shipped off to other parts of the world. There's obviously still industrial labor here, uh, you know, in the U S for instance, and there's plenty of industrial output more than ever. But, uh, you know, a lot of people who consider themselves communists, um, anarchists, leftists, socialists, whatever, a lot of these people not only don't work uh, directly proximate to or in sites of material production, but also may not really know a lot of people who do it. And uh, this has a big effect on the kind of your understanding of the world and what you understand is as critical Um, for a lot of the left, you know, they may, the only kind of they only interact with the commodity creation process at the very end of it when they're like, they're buying something and consuming it. Uh, whereas, you know, for all those commodities get made somewhere and they're made, uh, not by machines, but by people. Um, and it's, you know, people using machines, but in a way it's like the instrumental logic of the machine, you know, which is capital using the people for that end. And you got to really understand all of that, um, in order to really grasp kind of how this world works. And, uh, you know, I think that it's kind of easy for people to lose sight of that if they don't live anywhere near, uh, or if they don't know they live near any production sites, you know, the reality is they probably do and they just don't know it. Um, but you know, you don't know how, like where anything gets made. You've never like, you know, you, you don't know like different types of screws from each other. You haven't seen the inside of a warehouse. Like these are all things that are, are very subjectivity building. Um, and so is the lack thereof. Yeah, I, I do want to throw it over to Phil and just adding on to that as well. I often think about um, it was uh, an executive at Fairchild Semiconductors in the 1970s talked about how um, the entire semiconductor industry was was built on and dependent upon what he called jet age automation, which meant 
uh, shipping the precursors off to China and Hong Kong to then be put together in factories there by human labor and then shipping the outputs you know, on airplanes back to um, the U.S. And that's what he meant by jet age automation, right? It's not automation in any regards. It's actually an autom- it's a, it's a, and it's outsourcing, right? It's, a, it's, it's about logistics more than it is about um, production in that, re- in that way. Um, but for them, that was, you know, the true innovation there was a logistical innovation um, of having cheap and easy access to jet planes. Um, but I, I do find it very interesting that like, you know, in this kind of tongue in cheek way um, that then later pre uh, like persist where the, the tongue in cheekiness of it is kind of forgotten and left out, like framing it as automation as a way of framing it as uh, this is about the production process is being innovated in some way rather than what's actually happening is the management of labor and then the logistical distribution of inputs and outputs is what the the real kind of technological innovation is the the production process itself is largely you know Un, uninnovated um, in a lot of ways. It still requires people doing things. It's just, are those people somewhere else or are they here? Are we paying them a lot or are we paying them a little? That's that's the real innovation. And and I, But I like the point um, as well that the kind of the alienation from that production process, both like the kind of material alienation, but also the ideological alienation um, from that process uh, does make it difficult to think about how that process might be different if you don't actually know how it exists um, at, at currently. But I, want, I want to throw it over to, to, to Phil there, who I, I know has thoughts about that. I think that one of the big, one of the things that also kind of helped facilitate this piece was we had a good compatibility and relative uh, expertise in the sense that Nick has obviously a lot of um, engineering knowledge about the actual like process of production in the field of, of engineering. And then I have um, a lot of expertise in the study of industrial systems at this larger scale and the subcontracting structure of them. And then also a lot of uh, uh, focused work experience within just like low level kind of uh, uh, industries, uh, both. So on the one hand, I've done, you know, a bunch of global research going to these factory districts in Asia where all that stuff was outsourced and uh, walking around interviewing workers who are uh, employed like migrant workers who've come from the country to work in these large factories in uh, Shenzhen in China, or more recently, uh, you know, uh, uh, growing industrial districts in East Africa as well. Um, and then I also just come from very, you know, poor working class uh, background. So I've worked in a bunch of these weird kind of sacrifice zones and uh, strange, uh, just manual kind of labor sectors. And like right now, I, uh, uh, I work in a warehouse, like a what, what is ironically called a fully automated uh, warehouse in uh, Fife near the Port of Tacoma, and uh, it's obviously not fully automated. I'm there uh, stacking boxes, uh, but it's it's literally just you know a lot of people. Um, uh, I think I think this warehouse is maybe a good good kind of symbol of the conditions that we're in, in terms of subjectivity kind of uh, forming. So if you walk into this warehouse, right, it's this giant fucking facility, like multiple football fields, uh, young to, long to use like a proper American system of measurement, right? Um, it's just this enormous facility and you walk in and maybe there's like a thousand works at any given time. There's probably like a hundred people on, on site, especially in the night shift. I work overnight, right? Um, and above you is this giant fucking whirring 
machine thing called the grid. And the grid is just uh, conveyor belts, right? It's all these conveyor belts. It's this whole constellation of conveyor belts above you with these three-dimensional kind of like boxes of light, like these uh, little cages of just like very bright light that can scan a package. Like wherever the label is, it can scan it in three dimensions. And so these boxes are shooting super like high speed through these little things, getting scanned rapidly and getting sorted. And on one side of the building, people, are, people such as myself are unloading uh, boxes from uh, from uh, you know, trucks from semi trucks in containers, whatever it just came out of the port, maybe. And they're throwing it onto this conveyor system. It goes up into the grid above us. Um, there's only a couple people up there. They, they watch for like shit that's like broken open or is clearly messed up or going to jam or something. And they like shunt it down into like a little different chute. Uh, but that's like the only people up there. It's all machine systems. And then uh, they come down to where I work, which is just loading other trucks, other containers full of these boxes. Right. So they shoot down at me from this shoot very aggressively, very fast, often heavy. My legs get covered in bruises afterwards. I'm just getting pummeled by these boxes in the middle of the night, lifting, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of pounds uh, every night, probably. The average, I think, for us is 700 boxes per hour, so, and they're between 10 and 50 uh, uh, pounds, right? So you're making just walls, these puzzle but like Tetris walls of boxes so they don't fall down. There's a certain logic to do it um, so that, you know, you don't get crushed under them. Uh, you're hitting your elbows, uh, you're hitting your knees, you're getting like knocked by all these boxes. And a lot of times the flow will be so fast that you'll be kind of buried in this place and you're just digging yourself out with these boxes, right? Um, this is a very good symbol, though, I think, of how a lot of labor and our relationship to labor kind of works and the, the production process works in um in a country like the U.S. Um, in general, and then also increasingly just kind of in, in the world at large uh, with generalized kind of deindustrialization. What do we see? Well, we just see this kind of mass of commodities, right? This is the, the, the famous kind of intro to capital. And this is how capitalist society appears to us as a mass of commodities. And those masses of commodities now, they basically appear as boxes, right? And you're doing something to the boxes. You're stacking the boxes, you're packing the boxes, you're unpacking the boxes, right? Um, but it's just this kind of flow of boxes and you're, you're tasked with ensuring that the boxes must flow, right? That's like kind of the job. Um, but what's inside those boxes? Where does that come from, right? That's the thing that's kind of inscrutable. This grid, this machine system that's hovering above all of us, and it sends the boxes to you, right? That's the thing that's kind of inscrutable, that's inaccessible. Um, so that is really where there's this kind of blindness, both in the sense of how the economy works right now, these industrial districts, a hidden abode of production, right? It's still very hidden. It's more hidden than it used to be even. Uh, but also in the sense of what is in front of our face and what isn't. So the way that we conceptualize uh, like the future, the potential communist future often starts from this kind of immediate subjective experience of the world around us. And what is in front of us is what we can see as changeable. So for most people, that's basically everyday life, right? So they kind of imagine, oh, how might like uh, my individual kind of identity be kind of uh, morphable within a post-capitalist? Uh, if I don't have to do this, how would that kind of liberate my kind of individual self-expression? So that's a very common one. Another one is that what tasks are before us. Um, it used to be that many of the tasks that were kind of invisibilized, like uh, reproductive tasks, right, that, that were like the unwaged sector of housework, et cetera, et cetera, these were invisible to people. But now these are the big employment sectors in, in countries like the U.S., right? You work in healthcare, you work in insurance, you work in education, you work in food service, right? The traditionally reproductive sectors. 
So a lot of utopias really, really focus almost exclusively often on these reproductive questions, which isn't to say that they're not important. They're actually extremely important, right? And in a way, this enhanced reproductive subjectivity gives us a, an edge in thinking about what communism look like, looks like because so many of the fundamental things are really reproductive, right? As well as productive, but really, you know, reproductive is, is very core to them. And we kind of talk about that a little bit with the idea of, of a, a period of communist construction, having to really focus on education and some of these reproductive kind of reinventions of, for example, the relationship with the non-human world, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the question of production, which used to be much more kind of the focus of Marxist thought and used to be much more the focus of utopian kind of ideas, it's shunted to the background. And interestingly, that also reverses some of the uh, uh, some of the other kind of weird um like the gender binaries that get kind of structured into those questions, because at the same time that you had this outsourcing to Asia, you also have what's basically called the feminization of the proletariat, where you have a lot of these factory jobs being filled by women migrant workers in places like China, right? So you have this feminization of industrial labor. And so it kind of creates this very weird thing where a lot of people will take pride in the fact that, oh, well, we're focusing on reproduction, we're focusing on how, uh, you know, child rearing and things like that might be different under communism. And that's great. And I agree with those abolish the family have, you know, like liberate people through technological means from the horrors of childbirth, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then like proliferation of gender expression, all of that. But again, we've had those utopias for 40 years. That's basically the only thing people have been talking about in this utopian schema. Whereas the productive question, how are you making goods, that's just kind of ignored or it says, oh, the machines do it or, or something like that. You know, you look at a classic utopia like Ian Banks, great stuff, right? A lot of it's about amorphous, uh, you know, people being able to switch gender and being able to uh, go on all these kind of weird, uh, you know, adventures of human expression and art and culture and games, et cetera, et cetera. But productive is just done by these machines, and it's not really addressed, right? Um, and and that's, that's the universal now. That is the universal status of utopias and of uh, uh, thinking about what communism looked like for the past 40, 50 years. It's a response to an over, like, it's kind of a, in some ways, maybe an overcorrection in one direction, right? Uh, it's a response to what used to be the case where you'd only focus on production, right? And so now we're kind of pushing back and say, well, no, actually, we should focus on production. We should address these questions very coherently. And it is a very uh, a gendered thing that you don't focus on it because these are such feminized fields of labor, like assembly work, right? Um, you're, you have this new kind of hidden abode of, of production that is not talked about in the same way that housework used to not be talked about. And it's the fact that you have a bunch of uh, mostly women migrant workers us doing all these fine-tuned assembly things in electronics factories. I mean, let's 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 keep digging into this because I think this is really the the crucial thing here that also separates um, and lays the foundation for your your piece, but also um, and and you know. We, we've got a long conversation ahead of us because there's so much to dig into because also something your piece does that almost never happens is it doesn't just end at that critical point where it's like you compose this whole nice theoretical argument and you're like, and people should focus on production processes in their imaginations and planning for communism. The end, you know, and it just kind of puts that labor off onto like some future 
future research or future scholars should do this. But you guys actually, you spend the, the vast majority of this 20,000 word essay doing that work um, in a lot of ways. But I think there's, I think there's still, we, we need to build up to that. Um, I think as a, as a way to continue laying this foundation as to like why this kind of work is necessary, why you guys, I think have done such great work kicking that off in a real uh, serious uh, uh, and, and specific way, but also why there is still a lot more significant work that needs to happen in that in that vein. But let's keep digging into this question of of production as well and the kind of like the 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 shunting off of like these questions of production as those will somehow figure themselves out. You know, it'll be the fully autonomous luxury communism um, where my answer to that is literally a deus ex machina. You know, uh, God from the machine will will solve all of our problems of uh, of production and the subsumption under capitalism um, by giving us uh, machines um, that then that then break us free of capitalism. Uh, and and now we all all we have to worry about is these kind of more, uh, you know, frankly, like more fun, but also more immediate and tangible for many of us questions of like subjectivity and everyday life and identity and social relations and stuff and things like that. And there, there's something interesting that happens here as well, where because there's, because we're, we're not thinking in like real, mechanical and technical ways about like what is how does production like the the real kind of like the 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 fundamental stuff of like building and maintaining a society um around like how do we do real technical things uh, everything from resource extraction up to uh you know commodity distribution um like how do we think about those things in like radically different ways that are not framed around very capitalist ways of talking about them like resource extraction and commodity distribution. Um, but like rather than thinking about that, it, it becomes a lot easier to frame our utopias around what you guys have as this kind of critique of autarky, uh, autarky, um, where, you know, this idea of like kind of having these decentralized self-sufficient economic units, you know, in other words, like these kind of communes, right. Or, or to think about it as well, utopia comes from the vast proliferation of, uh, of chazes, right. Of Capitol Hill autonomous zones, um, from, from Seattle, right. Right? And uh, or or like a, a kind of Bukati Park style Occupy um, that like people kind of take this as like the organizational model for a society um, rather than something very different, which is not actually creating like an organizational structure of what society looks like. Um, so I, I mean I don't know like can can we dig a little bit more into like your critique of autarky here and and as well really through that confronting questions of like these big vast centralized and distributed systems like you you talk about the port at Tacoma where you work Phil and you know that is that port is a massive complex uh, socio-technical system, but it is also just one node in a much larger global, massive, centralized system of 
distribution uh, and supply chains linking together all these different stages and phases of a production process. Um, and and if, if you conceive of the world as a uh, a great proliferation of autonomous zones and, and communes and Bukati parks, wither the complex socio-technical systems um, that we all depend upon for for life. And that really, as the point you make in the article, any future society that does not require simultaneously a vast, vast catastrophic drop in living conditions and along with it, a catastrophic drop of, 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 of population through just massive die-offs through famine um, and so on, right? Like any society, any future society that does not look like that, look, look like, in other words, a bunch of medieval city-states um, with medieval, uh, you know, techn- medieval level technology um, would re- requires confronting that question of like, how do we create like these kind of like big centralized systems in a in an alternative non-capitalist world, a communist world, um, where our current kind of imaginations of that tend to be f- hyper focused on decentralized communes. Uh, I, I think I'll throw it to Nick for that. As if I haven't talked about this enough on 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 TMK before. Um. <laughs> well, then. It's- it should be fresh for you. You should be ready to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like in my mind, I was kind of bracing myself like, all right, like what, how can I say what I've said before, but in a way that sounds fresh and cool. Um, the, so I, I guess the, the big thing is that like, I mean, you kind of nailed it right there, you know, unless we want communism to involve like billions of people dying, which I don't, um, I think that's a bad idea. Um, you know, you can't just get rid of all the crap that keeps billions of people alive. Um, maybe in the very, very long term, you want to, I mean, you for sure want to restructure those systems. Um, but the reason we focus so much on kind of reprising Mao's um, whole uh, emphasis on the metabolism between the human species and the non-human world is because capitalism is not just, uh, it's not just this thing external to us in a sense. It's, it's felt like capitalism and the like its manifestation as a global technical industrial system has itself has wedged itself into the human metabolism. It itself is what mediates the existence of the human species on this planet with the not the rest of non-human matter on this, on this earth. And so if you want to transform that system, which we do, we're communists, um, you want to uh, completely fundamentally restructure it, you have to acknowledge the fact that, uh, you know, humanity has long passed the point where we, you know, we can go live in a world of medieval city states or, or however you want to imagine it without mass death, um, or at, at, at other and suffering for everyone that remains. I mean, you know, and so yes, the existing agricultural systems, the water purification systems, the, uh, shipping and transport from like, if you forget just the fact that we have many needs besides like food and water, that's obviously just like two needs among many, but like those, those things alone, uh, you know, you can't do those things without modern industrial technology. I mean, the, the purification of water, like moving, uh, food and water around, like growing food in high enough quantities. Uh, you know, you can't just immediately have everybody go shift to like community garden farming or something like that. You know, go look at any big mega city with millions of people living in it and really dense high rise apartments. There's just physically not enough space uh, to actually meet everyone's needs. And, 
you know, you get one drought, everyone's toast. Um, you have to engage with that. That's, that's like, you can't call yourself a communist seriously if you're not, if you don't acknowledge the necessity of those things. Um, but you know, and this, and then to get back into, you know, things I've said on this, on this podcast before is that when we think of what it would be like to have like a satisfying, gratifying, um, mode of production post-capitalism to actually produce goods in a way that is, uh, not only ecologically sustainable and, uh, you know, contains social deliberation and, and fairness in like embedded deep within it, but, um, also is just like not a huge time suck to people's time to actually make things. Uh, it ha- you have to rely on the fact that there's labor efficiency gains built into uh, certain types of production styles. And you want to leverage those as much as you can to enable people to have autonomy, decision-making autonomy at more localized scales. Um, you know, you go too far in one direction and you get, you know, centralized, like cartoonish levels of control over everything where if, you know, you want to make a sofa, you got to run it by the planetary sofa council. And then they reject your application after three months because you fill out the form wrong and you didn't, you, you pick the wrong kind of wood for the legs or whatever. And, uh, you know, it's, and then you got to start all over again and you're like, ah, like I hate this. And, you know, people want to just like correctly tear it all down just so they can make a sofa. But then on the other hand, if you go too far in the other direction. I always knew the the new world order was just a vast bureaucracy of administration. <laughs> yeah, big surprise. Yeah, yeah, no. Communism really was about state do things after all. Yeah, no. <laughs> but no, if, if you go too far in the other direction, of course, um, you know, you want to make a sofa without, uh, you know, mass manufactured lumber. You want to make a sofa without uh, readily available textiles. Uh, you want to, uh, you know, there's not already wood screws manufactured in some centralized facility somewhere. Um, you can still do it. You can make a sofa. It's not impossible, uh, but it's a it's a lot more work, uh, a lot more toil, and importantly, and maybe this example is not so apparent with sofas. But, uh, you know, something that requires another type of good that requires like combustion of some kind, like maybe you need to refine some kind of metal or something in order to make like you're doing localized blacksmithing. Obviously, you don't need capitalism to do blacksmithing. But, you know, if, if you have tons of people all, you know, mining a certain material and then, you know, individually, like the, the toxic runoff from the smelting process may not seem like a big deal in, in minor amounts. But then, you know, if everyone's doing this on like localized levels without, uh coordinating with each other, you know, you may have some kind of environmental catastrophe on your hands. Um, and you know, I mean, blacksmithing is kind of like a, a, a small example, but like lots of modern technology can be incredibly harmful to the ecosystem. Uh, and which in turn is harmful to us as, as human beings, as a friend of mine, Sean once said, um, you know, freedom is, uh, like freedom is, is guaranteed by the connections, and I think we might have actually like put something similar to this in the essay. But you know, freedom is guaranteed by the connections between people. Uh, it's not guaranteed by autonomy for ev- of everybody from each other. And so, I think that you know, striking a balance between the needs of people to make their own decisions and govern their own lives versus you know, the, like recognizing the fact that we live in a society. Like you know, we're all we're all connected with each other. We all like the things we do affect not only us, it affects those immediately around us and it affects people whose names we will never know. And so communism has to be able to have systems that allow people to make decisions within the context of broader systems of coordination that account for the fact that we are all socially entangled on an inextricably global level at this point, a global level that communism would need to retain as well. 
one thing I feel like your writing also makes me think, and also your points here makes me think about constantly, is the concern that there sits between us now and some of the systems we may need you know, to realize or to start imagining and experimenting with different logics that could lead to communism, that th- there's a large gap in part because of concerns or fears that capitalism has, in one way or another, closed the door on certain avenues of social organization, of uh, you know, uh, societies with certain metabolisms or with certain relationships to the world around them or with certain prospects for what can or can be provided for everybody. And that, that those might get in the way of a project of trying to convince everyone on a very real level that, you know, the, the, one of the core benefits that emerges here that I think you also touch on is, you know, understanding and sympathetic of, you know, Mao's piece, but I think in like, you know, explorations that center too much on it, the mundane is like, you know, how do we, one, do you, do you feel, or do you ever worry that, you know, capitalism has done sufficient damage in one way or another to, you know, narrow our options or to make it so that there are paths that we would go down that have mutually exclusive outcomes that we won't know about until we're in the, in the midst of pursuing them. And alternatively, do you find, are you also concerned about maybe the ways in which it might have poisoned people's faith or willingness to pursue some of the projects that are, you know, outlined and and talked about here that are ambitious ones, but aren't really that ambitious when we are talking about simply incorporating uh, democracy into more of the world itself and, and figuring out how to bring in intention or concern about how we're affecting others or what the world and the global systems that sustain all of our lives and all of our communities are going to look like and what kind of impact or imprint we want to leave, whether it's uh, socially or whether it's uh, economically. Yeah, I, I have, I would have two uh, kind of main lines of thought here. And the first is just that, so we're talking about utopia, right? And one of the old hallmarks of utopian socialist thinking, like back in like uh, Marx's era, right? The thing that produced utopian thinking was not so much a looking forward as a looking backward and saying, look, there's these forms of artisanal and peasant production, and they're being eroded and destroyed by this new kind of capitalist thing. And if we can just seize on those and kind of figure out a way to make those the center of social organization, uh, then we can create this more like these workers kind of republics that are that secede from this capitalist world or exist on its edges. Um, often these were actually integral elements of colonization, right, of, of founding these little utopian colonies out on the frontier um, in order to try to enact these artisanal kind of utopias of returning to these kind of things. But those get washed away fairly quickly by, uh, by capital or they even become its avant-garde, right? Um, and that's that's kind of a repeated kind of theme. And so what we are, so there is this question historically about could it have been different? And I think it could have. I think that there were times when, uh, an, an, an personally, that I think that there's times that were, there was like a, a nation, like capitalist um, dynamic forming, and that it was cut short and it was stopped. So like a classic example is that I think 
this is maybe a personal curiosity, but I think that the first really clear instance of a capitalist society taking formation was in the Southern Song Dynasty. And I think that uh, the Southern Song Dynasty was very clearly headed in that direction. And this also means that I think that the first time that capitalism was destroyed, right, strangled in its cradle, it was destroyed by Genghis Khan and the Golden Horde, right? They invaded, they destroyed this, this core of commercial activity that was going on. Because you have all of the elements, or almost all of the elements that are going on in, in, in um, England and in Western Europe in, in kind of the late medieval period. Um, you have all of those in Southern Song, China. You have rapid commercialization. You even have market, uh, massive marketization of... of um, uh, agricultural production, things like that. It's starting to kind of spread uh, fairly rapidly, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Big, com big maritime commercial culture, right? But then it gets destroyed, like quite literally just by the invasion of, of the uh, uh, the horde, right? It comes down and they found the UN dynasty that kind of functions quite differently. Um, so I do think that there were actually plenty of times where capitalism could have been destroyed or earlier and we could have returned to some of these, you know, artisanal uh, things, whether or not we would have said that's preferable or whatever, but, you know, like certainly I think a lot of people would look around today and think, like, yeah, I could have had like a, a nobler and better life on, on the step. Um, but, <laughs> you know, but now the second, the second kind of track is, is I think you're right. We have, something has kind of narrowed, right? Capitalism is fundamentally uh, a production of, of what uh, Jason Moore calls like a world ecology, right? It is the reshaping of the physical environment. And if you look at it, I've, we don't include this in that paper, but I have some of the, some things for a book that I'm working on, and uh, I've said, Nick, this kind of sample chapter uh, includes like graphics showing um, just the, the physical mass right, of, of production, the physical mass of production. So how much uh, anthropic rock, so things like concrete, brick, steel, et cetera, et cetera, how much of that exists relative to like the size of the biosphere, right? And either 2020-ish, depending on how you measure it, it's, it's one of those real fungible measurements, right? But somewhere between 2015 and 2030, the size of all of that anthropic mass and most of it is abiotic mass, so it's it's the concrete and the steel, right? But it includes biotic mass, the size of uh, all livestock, all cropland, all you know humans. It exceeded the mass of the entire biosphere. Right? So this is something that you can't go back from. It's there, right? It's a sediment. And this is the whole idea of from geology, from geomorphologists studying the Anthropocene. It's a sediment. It's fucking there. The concrete has been laid. It, de it erodes, it decays, right? There's all these things you have to deal with in relation to this, this what they call uh, in geomorphology, this technosphere. But it's really not a technosphere, right? It's not just these machine systems with their own supervening logic. It's a sociosphere, right? It has, it's, it's a social system that has this technical encrustation, this technical exoskeleton that's been laid across the world. But the fluid elements of that exoskeleton, the, the kind of organic part, is, is the social side of it. And that's the system of social domination that is capitalism. And the system of liberation from that social domination, which is communism and the construction of communism, that entails 
right? The repurposing, the conquest and repurposing of this technical exoskeleton and the creation of a different one that has a different fundamental relationship with the biosphere. Now, the base of that, which we don't talk about much in the article, and if we want to talk about it more here, we can. The base of that is instituting agroecological systems for kind of fundamental production of like foodstuffs and interaction with the uh, direct interactions uh, with uh, interfacing with the non-human ecosystems, right? But I don't think that this idea of just just going to like permacultural systems or whatever, it doesn't always make sense. Um, at the same time, though, it's also something that capital can also do and is also doing. There's a vast interest in the venture capital field right now about agroecological production. It's the forefront of, of agricultural um, industrialization, the creation of new technical systems for things like laser uh, machine site, laser guided uh, weeding systems instead of instead of herbicides for the next generation of tractor technologies for like no-till agriculture and being able to create a machine uh, intelligence system that can figure out uh, like like uh, alternated alternated cropping systems and things that are popular in permacultural systems, right? There's no reason to believe that agroecological uh, practices can't be subsumed as well. Uh, so it's not just that, but that there is this idea that we have to create a very different relationship at this agroecological level, and that's the foundation and the kind of maybe the primary task of the period of communist construction that we don't talk about as much in in our uh, in our article. You know, this also just made me realize you guys are both fans of sci-fi, so I'm sure you've come across the subgenre of science fiction where a, sig- a non-significant or sometimes the entirety of a celestial body is converted into a computational substrate that will house some mind. You know, throughout the piece when you the times where you're kind of talking about the you know the mater- material substrates as well as the metabolic as well as the metabolic system or the metabolism of, of, of human civilization maybe wonder, but I feel like there'd probably be, I don't know if there'd be any use or anything that would value of come of it other than just like some a fan thing of sci-fi, like looking up meta, metabolic um, gaps. And I guess inside of some of these weird cell font uh, civilizations, but then again, going back to also your larger point about science fiction, if, you know, with some of them maybe being hard sci-fi, but not, the most internally consistent ones it's probably not even like a wouldn't even be like a fun project you know or or something that would shake out any insights i guess you know i'm also i'm also uh, you know then curious as a going off of that right where we're talking about sort of transformation um of the world ecology and 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 also in reference to some of the utopias that might that have thought about been thought about in the past and might pop up in the future. I feel like, or I'm curious about your take on some of the discussions that have, I think, picked up in steam, of course, partly because of urgency, but also because I think, you know, more attention has been rightfully shed on thinking about um, or rethinking environmentalism with some of these ideas that have been longstanding and more at the forefront. I mean, do you see... And I guess this is a sidebar from the paper. Do you see or come across like venture capitalists, right wingers, capitalists themselves, kind of like taking into account these ideas as part of some sort of, I don't think reform is the right word, but as some sort of like fail safe or safety lever measure to try to, you know, point out, hey, like, you know, maybe thinking about the ecology as a whole, thinking about metabolism, thinking about or using it in any way to warn about. Uh, standard practices and, and, and 
advocating for any sort of reform or is it more so you know a site for them to come up with new ventures new startups new schemes or um, ideas about you know business as usual or maybe some other sort of project that they're interested in some political project or just like you know some some uh venture some business model the I as as a bit of like an oblique answer to your question. Um, I I'm not I'm thankfully not plugged into the whole VC world. Um, I I value my sanity. I apparently more than you guys value yours. Um, and so I don't know what kind of nonsense they're up to. I, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure there's probably a number of them focused on that kind of stuff, and they probably have all sorts of wacky shenanigans they wanna they wanna fund. Um, but uh, I, I somewhat recently read uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's The Ministry for the Future, uh, and it was a, a book I, I honestly did not like um, for a number of reasons. Uh, but what was interesting to me about it was how much it was kind of a like I was I was kind of optimistic. I was kind of hoping it would that book would end like, and then the the revolutionary proletariat you know seized the means of production and installed communism. But you know, of course, that's not how it ends. Um, the book to me very much seemed like. I mean, it was, you could argue that the different currents in the book were revolutionary currents. That's probably accurate. Um, but to me, it almost kind of seemed like the, in the book, like the, the rebirth of like the revolutionary bourgeoisie against kind of like the existing, I guess if you want to call them like the fossil capital bourgeoisie or whatever, um, the book featured different instances of, of proletarian, uh, radicality in, in different instantiations. Uh, but all of that was kind of, I mean, the, it's fiction. So of course, you know, like I'm, we're, we're hypothesis. I'm speculating about a world that doesn't really exist here, but um, you know, a lot of the currents in that, the author doesn't even focus really so much on the, like the, all the main agents in that book are largely um, of the capitalist class of some sort um, or like some, you know, adherence to kind of like the, the bourgeois order. Yeah. There's almost like no attempt. Is there a single POV on the, like the, was it the sons or the daughters of Kali? Um, you know, I thought they were going to play like a bigger role when they were first introduced. And I was kind of surprised how little of a role they played in the book. Like I kind of mm-hmm. like, they were clearly important for like keeping things moving, but no, I think you're right. Like there was, I, there was barely any kind of like first person perspective of them. And, you know, and I, I don't want to spoil too much about the ending. I was just about to do a big spoiler for people. I'm not going to do that, but, um, uh, that'd be a dick move. But, uh, Overall, the any kind of like instance of proletarian militancy in the book uh, is either co-opted or kind of like destroyed in the process of establishing this like weird like capitalism 2.0 that they have that's like more environmentally friendly and more like participatory and you know I mean like if that came around sure I guess it'd be a better way to live than we currently have but it's kind of example another example of like utopias. Um, better than, better than many others in the sense of like trying to at least kind of work through like the real problems of, you know, of getting to your new future world. Like it definitely does do that. But I mean, you know, the kind of communist pessimism in me, I don't think that it's really possible to, uh, have like a new capitalism that doesn't fundamentally still have the same problems of, uh, today's capitalism. Uh, even if it's brought about by like a new revolutionary bourgeoisie that is, uh, you know, maybe like genuinely heartfeltedly committed to eco sustainability and all that. But like, you know, what are they after at the end of the day? They want sustainable profits. Now it's just eco sustainable profits. And they, you know, because I mean, the bourgeoisie, it's a very variegated class. It's not like the entire class is like in lockstep with each other, just like the proletarian class. And so lots of capitalists are, you know, plenty smart enough to see like, hey, if the world collapses from climate change, I can't. 
know, there's the whole basis for the continued reproduction of capital, uh, like over across all of global society. If that goes away, like there goes my privileged position, my, my class position as a capitalist. And so, yeah, sure. Is it possible that there could be like a new revolutionary capitalist class? Maybe, I don't know, but like, even if they succeed, uh, and even if the world is like managed, even if it managed to solve some of the problems of, of that we're currently experiencing, I don't think that it would ever be as rosy and cheery and like functional as what uh, Robinson portrays in, in his ministry book. Um, and I think that a lot of the, whenever you do see uh, venture capitalists or, or, you know, startup founders with starry eyed visions of a future where, you know, through whatever technology, like hype technology flavor of the day is, is, you know, in vogue, like saying through that, they're going to stop climate change or they're going to like, you know, bring power to the underserved people who need it or whatever. I, it's just, it's just all kind of bullshit. That's just like, it's capitalism. Is time and again, it, it's, it, it doesn't care about any of that. It only cares about those things insofar as it can continue to reproduce itself. And there's no real way around that without just getting rid of capitalism. It's called in this, this constant trap, which, you know, of, of capital being the, the kind of prime mover of history, capital being the, the only agent of, of change in society, in the world. Right. And I mean, I haven't read, you know, ministry for the future. Um, but, but the way you're describing it kind of sounds like the, you know, even something like that book, like by an author like Kim Stanley Robinson gets kind of caught in that trap as well of like capital as the prime mover, um, of, of, of history that like capital as the only agent, um, in the, in the sense of like the only decision maker, the only, um, force or, or group with the ability to make decisions. And, you know, obviously that's something that I, I think is just wrong and like as an empirical and social fact. Um, but it's also something that, really segues us nicely to thinking more seriously and concretely about like what alternative forms might look like, right? Where that kind of that agency gets more diffused throughout society in these more kind of deliberative ways, as as you guys put in the piece, right? I mean, I think we we can draw a real distinction between um, you know democracy and communism, which you do in the piece as well, which I think is a really helpful distinction to draw because it's a it's a necessary one to then think about how that kind of agency of decision making um, gets more diffused and deliberative and associative ways throughout uh, throughout society, how that leads to and kind of gives the ability to um, confront the world in new and different ways, to build and construct a world in new and different ways. And I, I really like, um, I mean, one, the you do mention in the piece the the very briefly just as a kind of like offhand remark the fact about how like the the mass of concrete and still the kind of anthropic uh mass um it now equals and is out is outweighing the aggregate biomass and i that was something that really stuck with me because it was it just really puts it in this like very shocking way of like fuck <laughs> like but yeah you look around you're like of course like uh, that mass of concrete and steel not to mention the mass of like anthropic you know livestock and 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 feedstock and all of that of course it would begin to outweigh um the the kind of non-anthropic biomass because there's so much of it but it is also not just a like a shocking trivia fact but it is one that necessitates like being taken into account 
account in our, our our materialist analysis, right? Because like that's the material stuff of the world. And I think um, I have really, you know, I've critiqued this a lot in different ways in in my own work. Thinking about on one hand, I, I have I've talked about this as the kind of the terraforming of the world, right? Capital has terraformed our world into a world for and by capital. Um, you know, it's so uh, so in that way, there's this kind of technological terraforming of the world, um, but also confronting that is necessary for any kind of like radical technopolitics, right? Thinking about like on one hand, um, when things are made, they are just kind of taken as given. They're unchangeable and they are assumed to, because they exist, they must continue to exist. This is how a lot of innovations and technologies are foisted upon us. And the most radical possible thing you can do in the face of that is to say no, right? To say no to some technology, to deny it, um, is a radical act because the assumption is, well, if it, if it's made, it must, deserve to be made. And if it exists, it must uh, continue to exist. And thus, the only radic- the only option available to us is to just keep building more stuff on top of stuff. So you have this like kind of ever expanding and increasing like archaeological strata of society where you never you never unmake, you never disassemble, you never uh, deconstruct or destroy the foundation. You just keep building more foundation on top of it. It makes me think of how, like, when uh, building like these sub levels of um, of skyscrapers, like the foundations and the basement levels, um, very often what they will do is they will just bury the uh, the machinery, um, it, you know, in the concrete because it is much cheaper than trying to pull out you know, excavators or diggers or other kind of detritus from uh, from the foundations. And then this has become a real big problem in, in dense urban areas like London and like New York, where they're like, well, we, we, we can't build up as much anymore. So let's try to build down. Let's build new basement levels. And then they're coming across all this, like all these excavators and, and other construction detritus from previous eras where, uh, and it's just causing these problems, right? It puts up these barriers to doing something different. You just put in the chat, Nick, that you call it the, this mountain of bone bequeathed to us by history, and and it's it's a the it's a mountain of bone, but also of concrete and and iron and and innovations of previous generations, kind of bequeathed to us, and and they they, uh, I I think even. Even the most, even like people who are trying to think radically about like not anti-capitalist or non-capitalist alternatives tend to take uh, if they if they think about that kind of concrete world in any serious way, rather than taking the magical realism route of just kind of wishing it away and providing us you know some kind of tabla rasa to build on. Um, they if they do think about it, then they think about it. I think very often as a kind of additive. Um, process of just building new stuff on top of the stuff that already exists, and and um, I, I think there's a there, there's a both a technological point here around like needing to deconstruct, disassemble, decide 
should things and can things be remade in some way, uh, you know, or are they um, anathema to the ends that we want, and thus they need to be, uh, you know, destroyed? Um, there's a there's a technological point there, but I think there's also simultaneously a social point about forms of organization, right? Like, should we just to completely destroy uh, the ways that we the the ways that we are socially organized within capitalism because? Hey, they exist in capitalism, and that must mean that uh, you know that they can't exist outside of capitalism. So we have to like completely start over, and then that kind of gives us the 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 problem of the the classic you know cliche line of it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism because if you have to because if you're confronted with that kind of idea that you have to build some like totally new, all new, radically new stuff, then it would actually be easier to do that in the the remains of some um, destroyed world. But that's that gives us these dead ends, I think. Dead ends where either you accept what's already given and you just kind of keep adding to it in the hope that you build yourself out of capitalism or you reject everything that's given to you. And then that's also a dead end because now you have to go about, like set about raising the entire earth and then starting from like year zero, uh, building a, a brand new earth. And not, neither of those are possible. Neither of those are likely, but they are really effective at uh, kind of, a, you know, stopping any kind of imagination or action that might follow from that, right? Because the the problem confronting us is so mountainous as to be un, like insurmountable. I think your 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 piece does a really really good job of navigating that by actually thinking seriously about like what would a so, like a socio technical, both a social and technological organization of society look like, such that like we don't have to start from a year zero, nor do we start from a magical realist kind of point of view, but we can start by thinking about like how, what would it look like to inject more uh, deliberation and more forms of association into the way we already do things and how that then leads us to a kind of perhaps long process of Building out of capitalism a form of uh, a form of communism that looks very very different, but it's because it starts from kind of very graspable and very doable um, immediate first principles. That's actually a really nice segue for us to answer that question and dig more into those kind of details in the second part of our of our conversation. First of all, Nick, Phil, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for the thanks for coming on. There will be we'll have links to the essay in the episode description, but that's not it. Uh, I, I we're going to just pick up this conversation exactly where I just left things um, in the premium episode over on patreon.com slash this machine kills where we have laid a lot of the foundation. We've done a lot of the theoretical uh, work necessary to then get into the concrete stuff around like 
how what does a what does a communism of associations look like you know a, and a, what what nick and phil call an association of producers right um where we can actually start thinking seriously about how these real thorny heady necessary complex problems of like how do we build water purification plants and hydroelectric dams, right? How do we not just maintain kind of uh, what already exists in terms of our in- industrial infrastructure and uh, you know conditions of life, but how do we advance those? Really have true communist innovation, not just thinking about communism as some kind of like return with a V or primitivism or pure degrowth, but thinking about communism as a truly innovative system that takes us in in, in, in future pathways that that are unimaginable in capitalism because they don't exist within the very narrow confines and restricted parameters that capitalism sets on how some on how technological and social uh, innovations and organizations can happen. How do we break? free of that um through a uh, uh through communism these are all of the things that nick and phil get into um in the essay that we're going to get into in our our uh conversation in the second part so with that first of all nick phil thanks so much for joining for part one um we're gonna pick this right back up in part two over on patreon so subscribe there and we'll see you in the next part Yo, 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 yo,